0: We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Now, if you're brand new here, you weren't here last week, uh, we're in the middle of a series about this, the Bible. Now, This is a well-worn portion. I I, I confess this in our midweek podcast that this Bible looks incredibly well-worn, and I've had this for like... 20, almost 30 years. This is my primary study Bible. But it looks better than it really is because actually one of my previous dogs ate this cover. So I'd love it to be that I was using it so much. But no, this dog got a taste for the leather and hid the Word of God in her belly. Uh, So here's a little, little review of what we learned last week. We learned last week that this book is actually not a book. It's a library of 66 ancient documents. It's ancient different types of literature that you'll find in scripture, that it was written over the span of 1,500 years by 40 authors, and it has one unifying story. And I'm gonna tell you that story later in the message today. And this teaching we're gonna head into, I wanna acknowledge the fact that this book, is, it's hard to understand, it's hard to read at times. And that's why there's a lot of misuses of it and even abuses of it. It's hard to read because it's an ancient book. It's an ancient book. This is why we remind you often around here that the Bible wasn't written to... The Bible's not written to you, but it is written for you. Now, that's really hard for westernized Christians that are a little egocentric, that we want to believe this book is just written for me. But this book is actually written for other people. And The authors of this book, and you know, this is going to be hard news for some of us here, the authors of the book weren't thinking of you when they wrote this. They weren't thinking of the 21st century when they wrote this. They were writing in a different era, in a different moment, in a different time. So who's the Bible written to? If it's not written to you, it's not written to me, who's it written to? Well, it's not quite that easy because it's not written to any in particular group or even particular individuals. It's written to many different people. So, for example, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, written by Luke, was written to a single person named Theophilus. And it was written for Greek mindsets, people that were in the Greek, in the Greco Roman Empire, but more those who had a Greek mindset. I love Luke. It's a fantastic book. Uh, the, Paul's letters are written to very specific churches and different geographical areas and cultures and also specific individuals. We get some of his personal correspondence in the Bible. It's incredible. So he's writing to individuals. Genesis and all of the Torah, it's written to Israel, the, na- the children of God in that time, in that era. Matthew was written for Jews. Mark was written for Romans and Roman mindset. All of these books had specific audiences in mind, specific cultures and a specific time. So each of them are a little bit different. this is why theologian Scott McKnight, he wrote a great book on reading the Bible, but Scott McKnight would say this. He would say that that was then and this is now, and that's what we need to remember when we're reading ancient literature. In other words, God spoke in the Old Testament in Old Testament type ways. God spoke in the New Testament in New Testament type ways, and God speaks in our days and our ways. Now, does that mean it's not relevant? No, it's incredibly relevant. But you need to acknowledge that it was written centuries before you were ever alive, centuries before Canada was ever thought of. And for that reason, it's an ancient document that requires a different treatment. We're going to get to that in a moment. The second thing, just kind of reviewing last week, is that it has diverse genres of literature. I'm not going to go through all of that today. We did last week's, but I just want you to recognize that's a gift. The gift is that God doesn't speak his truth to people in one form of literature or one genre. Instead, it shows the complexity of the God we know and the spectrum of the human experience. I'm attracted to certain types of literature and so are you. I know people that are, I, I know I meet you over the years, who you like the prophetic and the apocalyptic end times parts of the Bible, and you're kind of fascinated by that. That's personality driven. There are some people that love the narratives. You love the stories. You know, I, I, I'll watch a, a documentary. It might be a sports documentary. Shelley has no interest in a lot of the stuff that I might have interest in. But if it's a story of a family that's connected to it, she loves the narrative that goes with it. The type of Bible uh, scripture I'm really attracted to, and really one of the books that was the reason I'm following Jesus today is a book that a lot of people would never put in their top 10, Ecclesiastes. That's one of my favorite books in Scripture. It's more philosophical in nature. It speaks to my personality and rhythm. I love that God gives us diversity of genres to help us find on-ramps into faith and discover the complexity of God and the spectrum of the human experience. Now, the third thing we realize is the Bible is hard to read because we talked about this last week. It's a moving timeline. It's not chronologically laid out. Now, so why I wanted to answer this question, and we're going to move right into the message in just a second, but uh, last week in the chat room, and many people submitted questions in our midweek podcast, Pastor Jessica, Pastor Matt, and I had a great conversation about the Bible, but one of the big questions was, why wasn't the Bible arranged in chronological order? That's a good question. It's because they're all, all of the books are put according to the genre of literature. So you notice in the Old Testament, it starts with the, the law, or the Torah. Then it goes into the historical books. Then it goes into the wisdom poetry books. Then it goes to the prophetic books. The New Testament starts with the gospels. Then it goes to the one history book in the New Testament, Acts. Then it goes to all the letters. Then it goes to the one prophetic book in the New Testament, Revelations. They're according to literature. So if you're an engineer and you went into a library and you wanted to learn how to uh, build a bridge... And you said, well, it's somewhere in that section. And in it was poetic things about bridges. And in it was, uh, was little stories about people who lived under bridges. <laughs> and you're looking for one that just how, you're looking for the right genre. And so that's why libraries don't confuse you. They have fiction, nonfiction. Well, that's why the Bible was laid out that way. Now, I got a tool ready for you. You can go to onechurch.to to get it, whether you're online or in the room. Uh, what I did is I, I put together something that I'm going to help you. All, all the different books of the Bible, what genre of literature it is. Then I'm going to give you the chronological order of the Old Testament. I'm going to give you also... So this is a, one of the New Testament. Uh, oh, that's the genres of literature. Sorry, that's a different one. Uh, the Old Testament, the chronological one. We'll go to the next one. The New Testament, the chronological ones. Here's the book of Acts and all the... Uh, Pauline epistles that are written during it. So you can see the order in which Paul's writing these and what's going on in the world at the time. And then I'm going to give you this kind of fun. I'm just going to give you the date it was written. So most scholars believe Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Not chronologically, that'd be Genesis, but maybe written. What do you think of the first? Now, you probably see it. What's the first book written in the New Testament? James. James is probably the first book written in the New Testament. No, again, why does this matter? Now it depends if you're a real nerd. I get nerdy about this stuff. So I'm always interested in what did people have on hand when they were writing successive books? So I'm fascinated by this stuff. You can download it, it's a gift to you. I know you're gonna study it. Test next week, (laughs) test next week. Okay, let's jump into today. We need to remember then that the Bible's written to a specific audience at a specific time and a specific culture. we got to remember that. That'll help us handle Scripture and understand it. This is why a lot of people make mistakes with Scripture, and sometimes they misuse and even abuse Scripture because they're reading it in a different context, and they think it's in a modern context. Now, the truth endures, but we need to understand that a lot of the potential contradictions—does the Bible contradict itself? Most of those contradictions are because of the way we read Scripture— way we read it. So I'm going to give you the tools I use to read scripture. The first is, we're going to talk about context matters. Perspective matters. A community matters. And mystery matters. Those are the four tools that help you mind scripture in this ancient collection of all these 66 documents to really connect dots and understand and, and get the truth that is there. In some of it's just in plain sight. So let's talk about context matters. I introduced you to my mug last week, right? I just love the saying, you know, that, that I can do all things through a scripture taken out of context. <laughs> I love that. I can do all things, some tongue in cheek, but sometimes that's the thing. We read portions of scripture, and if we were to read around it, it wouldn't ring the same way. We like this verse. And we're hoping it's not connected to anything weird. And we're struggling to find the context. So I'm going to talk about some basic hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means principles in studying Scripture. So you can understand it properly. So Scripture is called a text. You have a text. So it could be one verse. It could be a portion of Scripture. But you have a text. And we're going to read some text passages today. And every text has a pretext and a posttext. In order to understand this text, you need to read the pretext and the post text in order to get it in context. Do you get what I'm doing there? The text is important, but you can't really understand the text unless you're gonna understand the pretext and the post text so you can put it in context. Who's the audience this author's writing to? Who is the writer? That'll tell you a lot about that person and where they're at and what's going on in their life. All of those things and the cultural implications from that era to this era, those are all important to develop the context. So I thought I'd pick on us a little bit. You okay with that? Okay, I know you are. So a couple of verses that a lot of Christians take out of context often. And listen, I've done this as a pastor. I've done it in gatherings like this. One of my most favorite ones that you'll hear church leaders use often is way out of context. It's Matthew 18, verse 20 that says this for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. How many remember that verse, have heard that verse, have heard a worship leader or a pastor use that verse? <laughs> have heard this pastor use that verse. <laughs> hey, listen, it's it's a here's the problem with that verse. A couple things. I, often we use it, and we have good intentions. We're saying that wherever two or three gather, God is here. So we're letting people know, cueing you, God's in this room. God's in this place. But the inverse of that, if you do kind of play that forward, that would mean that if there weren't two or three here, if there's one person here, God isn't here. We know that's not true. You know what's important with that verse? you got to read the pretext and the posttext. Because in Matthew 18, you read the pretext and the posttext, and you realize Jesus isn't talking about anything about gatherings. He's actually talking about conflict and how to resolve conflict. And in it, he says, listen, if you can't resolve something with your brother, bring somebody else with you, two or three. And listen, I can tell you, if you'll gather two or three people in conflict together, I gather, I, I promise you, I'll be there right in the middle of it. It's a beautiful promise, but it's a promise about his presence in the middle of conflict and resolving something. Now, harmless at one level. Let's, let's go to a different verse. One of the favorites. It's on everyone's fridge. It's on everyone's bumper sticking. And, and I know there's somebody saying, Pastor Jonathan, don't you dare touch Jeremiah 2911. That got me through my rough season. You just hold on to it. You just, like, you just hold on to it. But, but let's talk context a little bit. So in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, Jonathan Smith, declares the Lord. Plans to? Amen. And not to? Yes, right. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Sign me up. Sign me up. But what's going on here? Who's it written to? The Jewish people, when? When they're in exile, they're in captivity in Babylon. Why is it, and what's the pretext and uh, post-text? Jeremiah is actually in the 29th chapter, verse 11, he's correcting a false prophet named Hananiah. Hananiah has prophesied to the people that are in Israel that in two years, you're gonna find prosperity. And Jeremiah comes along, he says, uh, two years, try 70 years actually, guys. Seventy years from now, you're going to be free and prospering. Now, tell me, be honest with me in this room. Whose prophecy do you like more? Hananiah's or Jeremiah's? Uh, hands for Hananiah. Well, nobody wants to put their hands up. I'll put both up. <laughs> when you're going through tough times, don't you want the quick delivery? Jeremiah is offering a 70-year money-back guarantee. No thank you, Jeremiah. This highlights something that I think is really appropriate in 2023. The Apostle Paul knew we had a tendency to lean towards the Hananiahs in life. And he said this to a church He said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. By having itching ears, they will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You know, in this era, I don't think it's ever been easier. YouTube knows your algorithm. They know the type of preacher, teacher you want. They know the subject matter you want. You think you're looking for it. No, it came looking for you. It already knows what you like. Christian TV is the same. They know exactly your age demographic. They understand where you're coming from. They know exactly what you're looking to hear. Now, that may sound very cynical, but all I'd say is, listen, if all your preachers and teachers you listen to are all nodding in the same direction and you're amen in the all, man, I'm not sure you're not trapped in collecting a group of teachers that suit your own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths, conspiracies, and all kinds of things. Now, why is he saying that? Because I think we like the Hananias over the Jeremiah's. It's easy. I get I do too. I put both hands up. <laughs> What are the plans that, you know what's interesting in that verse? Let's go back to Jeremiah 29 11, if we could go back there. Sorry, guys, I'm kind of reverse engineering here. When it says, I know the plans I have for you, what's important to know is that's not a personal, that is a plural you in the Hebrew. It's not me, it's not Jonathan Smith, I know the plans for you. He was talking to a community of people in exile. So then you could say, okay, Jonathan, then why does that verse even matter to me? Well, it should. All of these things, we get to see how God relates to his people. And it's beautiful. He promises them a hope, not anchored in the present circumstances, but in their future ones. And that hope is fulfilled in the person of Jesus who came and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die, that now we have a hope and a future that transcends anything we may find ourselves in. That's why Paul's right when he says, we, these are but light and momentary troubles and hardship. They don't feel like it when you're in it, but because we have an eternal hope in Jesus, now we know the plans that he has for us. Plans to prosper us, plans for a hope in a future. So you gotta find the post-text and the pre-text for the text in order to get it in context, right? Okay. Then the second thing is perspective matters. So context matters and perspective matters. There's one unifying story in scripture, one unifying story in scripture. And this is the context for all of the books of the Bible, all the letters, all the commands and everything. And that unifying story is, do you want me to tell you it? Well, let's have story time here. Actually, can we bring down the lights? If we're going to story time, let's, let's take the lights down a little bit. I like some music too, because it feels it would feel so much more dramatic and better. Let's talk about the one unifying story in Scripture. So the Bible begins by introducing us to God, who creates this world. And what's beautiful about it is it says, out of the chaos, he brings beauty and order. And as part of his creation, he creates these beings made in his image, humans, or in the Hebrew, Adam's. And God places them in a garden paradise to rule over his creation and to tend to it and to bring more beauty out of his creation. And humanity faced a choice in that garden. Will we partner with God to accomplish this work or will we seize power for ourselves to do things our way? And the choice in that opening pages of scripture is represented by a tree. And the tree is a choice between good and evil. Will we trust in God's ability to distinguish good and evil? Or will we redefine good and evil according to our own will? And God warns the first humans that this, if you eat of this tree, it'll destroy you. So the first humans hear this whisper from this evil, dark creature. And the creature says, take the fruit. Take the fruit and you'll have the power and knowledge of what is good and evil. So they take the fruit. And it leads to the spiraling down of creation. It leads to all kinds of selfishness, and violence, and suspicion, and betrayal. Civilization gives into revenge, and hatred, and control, and abusive power structures. And humanity begins to define evil as good. And it's there that the biblical story takes a turn. God brings out two people, but it's not Adam and Eve anymore. It's Abraham and Sarah to create a new people that will have the ability to choose what is right. And if they are successful at it, it will make a way for all of humanity to be able to return to the garden. The rest of the Old Testament talks about this family that Abraham and Sarah creates. But But things don't go well. Despite God's personal involvement in their life, Abraham's family gives into the same whisper that Adam and Eve did, and they begin to define good and evil on their own terms. Even when their best rulers who loved God, who wanted to follow God, were in authority... They found themselves also listening to this whisper. So even though they did some good things, many of them used violence and slavery and, and greed and, and all kinds of evils to accomplish what they saw as being good. But even a good outcome accomplished in an evil way, it's not good. So the prophets call them out. Now the prophets warn them that the consequences of their behaviors is going to end up in captivity. And Abraham and Sarah's family, now a nation, are carried off into exile, into captivity. But the prophet said, the story's not over, guys. There is going to be someone that's going to come, a new leader that can cover our failure and give us the power to make right choices. So the Old Testament ends And the biblical narrative is picked up as we're introduced to someone who comes from the very lineage of King David. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And he says that he is bringing all of these ancient promises that have been left dangling from the Old Testament, unfulfilled, that they would now be completed and fulfilled in him. And that same dark creature came to Jesus and whispered in his ear and tempted him with power and control. But Jesus resisted this creature. And then he announced to anyone who would listen that God has arrived and he is beginning the push for a new creation. And that push was in the person of Jesus. And he talked and he taught in scripture, he redefined and gave God's definition of what good and evil was. And he found and he shared that it was actually found in serving others that those who love the poor and the marginalized and love their enemies, it's actually them that would rule the world. The story explains that Jesus is God, become human. To To be for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and Jesus' sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil and death combined. So humanity now faces another choice, and they stand at a different tree. In this tree, you make the decision whether we're gonna do things the way we've always done as humans, or whether we're gonna do things a new way, as a new creation, a new human. If we choose to go God's way, we become a people who are forgiven and we are restored. And then we are empowered to be able to forgive others and be part of God's great restorative plan for all of creation. The Jesus way grew and in the book of Acts you see faced great persecution. The evil whisperer would come to the followers of Jesus to distract them and God raised up apostles and the apostles encouraged people to choose the difficult but beautiful way, the Jesus way. Constantly reminding the followers of Jesus not to fuel their lives on their present circumstances, but to fuel with a future hope, a hope where all wrongs will be made right. A moment when evil will be eradicated finally, where the new heaven and the new earth would be created, a new creation would be established. This is the story of the Bible that connects all the books of the Bible. It's a story of God's love. It's a story of his creation. Evil's distorting power, Jesus' ultimate victory, God's plan to recreate his creation is a new heaven and a new earth. That is the one unifying story of Scripture. That is it. What's interesting is this story has a tone, and this is really important if you're going to understand Scripture. There's a tone to the story. And the tone is simply this, love. Love is the tone of the story, that one unifying story of Scripture. Now, what type of love? Well, you don't get to define it. It's a Jesus type of love. It's a Jesus type of love. So the way Jesus loved, that is the type of love that that one unifying story emits throughout all the centuries and situations and moments and stories. So... I, you know, I, I raised my uh, two young adult sons <laughs> to know this because I knew someday they wouldn't attend the church that I was pastoring. They both do right now, but, you know, life has a way of moving people and places. And, and so I always wanted them to know this, that when it comes to whatever church you might be in, when you're listening to a pastor or a preacher or a teacher or somebody teach, sometimes you hear them say things that the truth sounds more like a weapon than a key to unlock freedom in people's life. And so I've always taught them that tone matters. They might be saying right things. Does it sound like Jesus, though? Does it act like Jesus? Does it look like Jesus? Is it full of love and truth? If it's not, run away. Any church community that gets distracted with other types of theology or fringe theology, and somehow loses the anchor on the person of Jesus. This is why we talk a lot about him around here. I wouldn't trust a community that didn't have him at the center. Run away. See, it matters. Perspective matters. Anchoring yourself to the one unifying story and the tone of love matters. And we need to speak the truth. And truth matters, because it's only truth that sets you free. But speak that truth clothed in love. Love. So context matters, perspective matters, and finally, community matters. Community matters. You know, I, I think there's something beautiful about reading Scripture in community. There's an accountability bit baked into it when you read it in community, and there's a revelatory nature to Scripture. There's a revelation that happens when you read Scripture with people that are different from you. It's not any, just any type of community. It's diverse community that this helps with. Dr. Gordon Fees, a great New Testament theologian, he would say this, that hermeneutics and community, reading scripture in community, is what makes scripture richer and more meaningful and more engaging for all of us. And by that, he meant men and women reading together, young and old, culturally diverse, theologically diverse, differently abled people will see scripture differently, uh, different economic perspectives, blue collar, white collar, People who have been abused and broken will read Scripture slightly differently, and as you read it in Scripture, that's what corrects you often, challenges you, also opens things to you. So I want to spend a couple minutes on a really hard Scripture, really hard one that I don't like and maybe many of you don't like. And we're going to read it in community, and we're going to unpack it using some of the tools we just learned this is going to be really helpful. Just fair warning, all my sisters in the room and online, you're not going to like this verse. Okay? So you've been warned, right? Paul writes this. Let <laughs> just get a little drink here. Right? <laughs> Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be Whoa, yes, submissive. <laughs> Just as the law says, and all the women in the house said, whoa, no, you're not supposed to speak. What are you doing? Shh. No, see, see I, I have a little announcement here. Pastor Jessica will not be speaking anymore, as capable as she is. And Natalie and Hannah and Margaret, leaving us in worship time, are going to have to take a seat, not because they're not incredibly capable women, but the Bible says to be quiet. And so I know how quiet all of those women are. You can read a portion of Scripture like that and come to a church like us where we recognize anointed women communicators and leaders in our gatherings. Not just in our gatherings, but in every leadership table in this church. Our deacons, our elders. There are such capable women. But you could come here, you could read a scripture like that. Yeah, yeah, such capable women. Jessica, I believe you led the clap on that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah so that's right, that's right. You, you can read a scripture like this, come to a church like us and say, you guys are wrong. There's something wrong in this community because they're not honoring what scripture is saying here. And you know, always be careful of what triggers you. Your triggers reveal a lot about you. And so, especially when it comes to theology, I'm always fascinated with what triggers me. What triggers you reveals a lot about where you're at too. I've dealt with this question in particular through 30 years of pastoring, more times than I care to. And every time I think misogyny's dead, it comes looking for me again. (laughs) But here's the thing, all it does is reveal a lack of good hermeneutic. See, let's look at this. The first thing you need to do with a verse like this is, before I even go to the pretext and posttext, I go to the full context. What is the unifying story of scripture? How does God speak about women throughout scripture? And then when you read through the Bible, you encounter women like Queen Esther, who is leading in the nation. You encounter Deborah, who was a judge who led the nation of Israel. You go to the New Testament, you see women who are prophets and teachers, deacons. You meet an apostle named Junia in the book of Acts, a female. You see a husband-wife ministry team, Aquila and Priscilla, ministering with Paul in the then known world, propagating the gospel and sharing with others. Then you encounter scriptures like this. Genesis chapter one. God created human beings, say it with me, in his own image, this is very important. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Why do we miss this? God's image is best revealed as both male and female, masculine and feminine. There's a combined nature that is being revealed of men and women being made in his image. This is why we make good partners in leadership why we make good partners in life, is because we, the image of God expressed in both male and female form is critically important. Then we go to verses like this in the New Testament, where Paul says, there is neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. So there's this equality between men and women in the larger narrative. So, right away, you can tell something. We can conclude that whenever Paul is talking about to this church in Corinthians here in Corinth, that this was likely a local is- issue. Co- in a cultural context, not a universal prohibition of women in leadership. Now, let's go forward. Let's go even closer to it. Let's look at the pretext and the text. Let the women be silent in church. And all the women said? Yeah, you're doing it. This is awesome. In chapter 11... In the pretext, it actually encourages women to pray and prophesy in church. Paul says this. Wait, you mean chapter 2 before he's encouraging them to pray and prophesy in church? Yes. Okay, then what's the post-text? Then he says to everyone in the church, both genders, to participate in worship and speaking. So what gives? This verse seems to be in conflict with the context around it, with the pretext and the post-text. When you notice a micro-narrative, so we have a macro-narrative, which is the unifying story of God, and then there's these little micro-narratives. If a micro-narrative is in conflict with the macro-narrative, likely it's a localized issue. There's something going on there. Paul's address, remember, these are letters not written to you written to specific people. He knew these people. He knew what was going on in the church. It'd be kind of like me writing my boys an email and I know something's going on to them and I'm giving it to them a little bit on something and you read it 40 years from now and you're wondering like, what was he even saying there? Well, you didn't know all the details, but Paul does. So here's the reality for me. I'm a male. I could benefit from a power imbalance created by a surface reading of a passage like this. I could be blinded to the context of this verse because somehow it may benefit me. This is why community is so important. Because in community, we challenge each other. So I know that if I was going home preaching this verse, my wife Shelly would have a few things to say to me about this. We save each other. You know, I'm here for my sisters, my sisters are here for me. We, we balance each other. The young are here for the old, the old are here for the young. Our cultural perspectives, even when you read scripture culturally, it's so diverse when you go around the globe, how people read certain portions of scripture, rich, rich in meaning. We learn from each other, we protect each other. See, friends, I'm not naive. I know that likely you listen to a lot of great preachers and teachers, other than us. There's a lot, I, I do too. There's some really great ones out there. But know this every time you hear a podcast or listen to a YouTube video or anything, they're speaking to a specific people at a specific time in a specific location. Could be New York City, could be Calgary. Uh, they are speaking to a specific person. That, listen, I, I'm not saying that, uh, not because uh, I really want to encourage you to prioritize these gatherings and these teaching moments, and I'll tell you why. Not because we're the best Bible teachers, but because we're your Bible teachers. We spend a lot of time praying and seeking and asking God, what do you have for our community? What is it you'd like to say to our community? Even going into the series is incredibly intentional to help equip us to learn God's word and not be susceptible to all the stuff that just gets out there and sound bites and all the vile hatred that you hear kind of quotes, scriptures that are thrown out here out of context as weapons. We want to prepare our community to be able to healthily engage and handle God's word. So you need to understand the context, the, the, the perspective matters, context matters, perspective matters, a community matters. Here's where we're going to land. We're going to be done in a couple minutes here mystery matters. Mystery matters. I, I like what this Scott the- uh, McKnight says. He says this quote uh, about scripture. He said, God gave the Bible, not so we can know it, but so we can know and love God through it. What is the purpose of the Bible? It's not an academic book. It's not meant to be the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, what do you call it in, in school? You have a, There you go, required textbook. Yeah, that's it. It's not a textbook. Everything about this Bible is to help you to know God and to love God deeper. And it's not about even mastering it. God did not give the Bible so we could master it. God gave the Bible so we could live by it and so we could be mastered by it. So I have a little habit. I have many habits when I'm reading God's word, but one is to remind myself to not get over the text, but to get under the text. And what I mean by that is, God, reveal your truth to me, even the stuff I don't like, because I wanna live it. And I know this, if what I'm reading doesn't sound or look like Jesus, I'm probably not reading it in context. I'm probably not reading it properly. And that's that's part of the challenge, and that's why community becomes so important. But there's always gonna be this element of mystery with faith. And this is gonna bother those of you who love solid answers, because I'll tell you, I love solid answers. But I like what Paul says to that same church, one chapter previous to the Let the Women Be Silent verse. He said this, "We We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in fog, peering through the mist. I love Paul. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul saying this. Friends, whatever you think God is, he's much bigger and grander than you could ever imagine. Every time you try to contain him with some sort of transactional relationship, if I do this, God will do this. Oh, listen, you're not going to manipulate God. Whenever you try to pencil them into your agenda and say, you know, well, God can be in here, but not over here. God can have this and not this. You don't understand the idea of authority and how God works. He's not just a good luck charm. He's not just someone that we, a genie, we rub, they think. He's the king of the universe. You bow your knee and you say, not my will, but yours be done. And then we do the hard work of community of figuring out the will of God together. Some of it's so easy to read, but you can see the difference between the Old Testament is palatable and the New Testament. Is it still, do the Ten Commandments still stand today? Well, yes, but I'd say more so. The New Testament requires even more of you. The Old Testament, you know, don't lie, don't kill, don't commit adultery, all true. The New Testament says, love your neighbor. So is it loving to lie, kill, or murder, or cheat? No. It calls you even further. It's no longer an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Oh, friends, following Jesus is the greatest adventure of life. And why I love this book so much is because it has been so key in helping me find Jesus and helping me explore what it means to live my faith in 2023. Always keep it in context. Remember the unifying story, perspective. Remember community matters. And remember, there are always going to be elements of mystery. Faith requires some measure of a leap. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. It's a lamp to our feet. God, we as a community, we we follow Jesus, and Jesus, we want you more than anything else. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters, my friends, whether online or in this room, when they reading Bible, we're reading the Bible. Holy Spirit, would you just illuminate the text to them? Would you speak to them through your words? Would you help them to also be good students, to to handle it right? And to make sure, God, that they don't handle it in a way that puts extra burdens on the people around them. They don't handle it in such a way that creates a lot of uh, uh, chaos in their life or the lives around them. But instead, God, they would be looking to learn to hear what the truth is and what you're saying through these ancient documents. God, I know this above everything right now. And I pray that everyone that's in this room or online would know this if they hear nothing else. Jesus loves you. God loved you so much that he sent his one son that if you placed your trust in him, that you would have everlasting and eternal life. That if you took all the things you've done that are wrong and if you confess it to him, that he will be faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I'd invite you into that space if that's helpful for any of you Maybe you'd like to trust in Jesus today. This is a simple prayer. You don't need to say my exact words, but let them echo in your hearts. Jesus, I come to you today just as one of your creation. Adam and Eve couldn't do it on their own. Abraham and Sarah couldn't do it on their own, and I can't either. I've listened to the whispers of that evil creature. I've given in to temptation. I've been distracted from truth. And I ask for your grace and your forgiveness. I trust in Jesus, the one who's made a way back to the Father. Would you forgive me? Would you fill me with your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you, church. Thank you.